Every week, journalists at the University of Florida's College of Journalism and Communications report important stories for the people of North Central Florida and beyond. This is The Rewind from WUFT News. I'm your host today, Malia Leiden. I'll take you for the strongest reporting coming out of our newsroom and the discussion with the journalists who write these stories. I'd actually heard about this band before. It's really legendary in Gainesville, and it used to be very much culturally Black with equal amounts of Black and white students participating. But McNeely raised a question about the current Eastside band. Where were all the Black students? What happened? So it's very close-knit, very tight. Families are have stayed there for generations. Brothers and sisters live right next to each other, cousins, aunts, uncles. The turnpike would just split that in half. For many people in our community, this is not in the past. This is still something that they care about. It's still something that moves them today. And they don't feel like they've had resolution to this. When Lincoln High School suddenly closed down in 1970 to make way for the brand new integrated Eastside High School, Gainesville's black community was facing an identity crisis. In came Richard E. Parker, the new high school's band director, who worked to create unity between black and white students and encouraged students to reach for a bright future. His work earned Eastside High the name of Little FAMU, named after Florida's historically black public university with a distinctive musical style. But decades later, that musical identity has slowly been erased off Gainesville's fields, while alumni fight to preserve Parker's legacy. Report for America Corps member Katie Heisen covers inequity in East Gainesville and other rural communities for WUFT News. She brings us this story after months of exhaustive reporting. Producer Melissa Fato began by asking Katie about how she started on the journey of reporting the story. When I first started this beat, I saw this video of Dr. Lynetta McNeely. She's a school board member talking about the East Side High marching band. I'd actually heard about this band before. It's really legendary in Gainesville, and it used to be very much culturally Black with equal amounts of Black and white students participating. But McNeely raised a question about the current Eastside band. Where were all the Black students? What happened? And I couldn't shake her question. It launched two months of reporting that led me to an answer that was a lot deeper than I imagined. All right, and we'll get to that answer, but first um, let's get a little background on this story. So you begin the story with the closing of Lincoln High School in East Gainesville. What happened there and what were the consequences? So when the federal government finally enforced desegregation in 1969, like a lot of other places, Gainesville closed the school for Black students, Lincoln, and sent those students to white schools and two new integrated schools. One of those new integrated schools was Eastside High. 
the forced closure of Lincoln was a huge loss to the Black community here. Lincoln wasn't just a school, it really was a community center. And alumni described it to me as a safe space in a highly segregated racist town. And it was taken away in the middle of the school year. When the students came back from winter break in 1970, Lincoln was gone. And still today in 2022, community members got choked up describing this loss to me. So after Lincoln closed, how did Eastside fit into the picture? Eastside was one of two new integrated schools that the county built. Um, there was one on the west side. The county had also closed a white school, Buholtz, but that school was allowed to transfer its name to the newly built integrated school on the west side. Lincoln wasn't. So there was this new integrated school on the east side of town that had to develop a new identity from scratch, and that became East Side High. So tell me about Richard Parker and what he did for East Side. Oh, man, I have not stopped thinking about Mr. Richard E. Parker since I started reporting this story. He he was the band director tasked with starting a marching band at Eastside. And think about this school being newly integrated. There was so much turmoil in town over the loss of Lincoln and forced desegregation. So Eastside could have gone poorly, right? But Mr. Parker really brought black and white students together in this band and gave them a new shared identity and purpose and pride. All the alumni I spoke with speak of Parker as a father figure and someone who was persistent with students. He wanted them to succeed and stay out of trouble and go to college. And he used the band as a vehicle to do that. He was truly a community pillar on the East Side. Marching bands have a cultural significance in the Black community as well. Can you give us some of the background as to that cultural impact? So the marching band's role in the Black community really traces back to the Revolutionary War. Black people weren't allowed to hold weapons, but they could play in the drum and fife corps. So when they came home from war, they brought this new shared musical expression with them. And later, the marching bands really became a tool of protest. During Jim Crow, marching bands allowed large groups of Black people to not just gather together, but to demand attention with these vibrant, loud displays. And today, when you look to HBCUs like FAMU and Bethune-Cookman, the marching bands embody so much excellence and swagger and joy. So it's also a representation of Black identity and pride. And that's part of what Mr. Parker brought to the school, as you report. Um, and so much so that Eastside earned the reputation of Little FAMU. So Florida Agricultural and Mechanical University famously have a very, very excellent, important marching band. And Eastside, the high school, gained the reputation as Little FAMU. Why did they gain this reputation? And, and what significance did that have in the Gainesville community? Yeah, so Parker actually marched for FAMU himself, and he taught that marching style to the band at Eastside. The band was just so 
excellent and swaggy and joyful. I mean, their performances were incredible. You watch old footage of this band and you want to be in it. They danced and they played the latest radio hits. I mean, the spirit of this band was just so contagious. And so the whole town became fans. They would pack into the stands to see Eastside March at halftime. And that gave the surrounding community and these students something to be proud of again. After the loss of Lincoln, the band really offered that sense of community identity. You spoke to some people who were part of the band during this era. What did they have to say about how they felt about their participation in this group? It was pretty incredible to talk with alumni because, you know, many of them are past retirement age at this point, and they still light up talking about their high school band. You can tell that for many of them, this is one of the proudest um, things that they participated in. One of the alumni I spoke with still had his high school band photo on his mantle. It left its mark on these alumni and not just in fond memories, but many alumni I spoke with said that Mr. Parker steered them away from prison and to college and careers of service. So it left this lifelong legacy that alumni are still paying forward now. So you spoke to his, um, his widow and his daughter. So what did you learn about the legacy that he left behind? I know his legacy and his impact of the community is really what made his hours away from home worth it to them. They had a laugh together about how many dinners they ate just themselves at home because Mr. Parker was at the school with his band. Um, and to them, Mildred Parker in particular said that she didn't stay upset for long because she knew what he was doing and why he was doing it and that he belonged not just to them, but he belonged to the community. That was producer Melissa Fato speaking with WUFT's Report for America Corps member Katie Heisen about her reporting on the legacy of Gainesville's Eastside High marching band. When we come back, we'll learn about how new school leadership and an increase of white students slowly began to change the band's musical style. I'm Aaliyah Leiden, and you're listening to The Rewind from WUFT News. Stay with us. Behold the shepherd tone. The Tinkerbell effect. Hillbilly humanism. The Overton window. Hyperobjects. The Bill Gates problem. The Zuckerberg delusion. Times are changing, and so is our vocabulary. Apotophobia. The public trust. Parasocial relations. The anti-bandwagon fallacy. Monopoly and monopsony. Let On the Media be your guide as we explore the future together. Sunday morning at 10 on WUFT 89.1-90.1. When 
when we left off, Gainesville resident Richard E. Parker had developed a renowned marching band with a distinctive style at the newly integrated Eastside High School. The band took influence from the musical styles of HBCUs like FAMU and Bethune-Cookman and quickly became the pride of Gainesville. But beginning in the 1980s, Eastside began to see some changes, and after Parker's retirement in 1990, there was a shift in the band's marching style altogether. Let's get back to our conversation with Katie Heisen, WUFT's inequity reporter and Report for America Corps member. Producer Melissa Fato begins by asking Katie to describe what began to happen at Eastside in the 80s. So starting in the 1980s, um, Eastside started to see some changes to this marching band. What was happening? In the early 80s, Eastside hired its first white principal and launched an IB program really to incentivize white families who had moved farther and farther away since integration to come back to the school to maintain that federal mandate to integrate. As soon as Parker retired in 1990, they hired a white band director who changed the style of the band away from the traditional HBCU style to core style, which is very stiff movements and glide steps. At their first performance, they played Phantom of the Opera, uh, which was a big contrast to the funk and R&B they used to play. And the community no longer saw joy as they expressed it on the field, the way that was culturally reflective of the neighborhoods that surround the school and the students who attend it, and the way that brought them so much pride. And after that first performance, a majority of the band quit. There were some later attempts to bring the old style back, but ultimately the school mandated core style and it's still core style today. The current band director did manage to grow the size of the band back, but it's mostly non-Black and IB students. So this gets to sort of the beginning of our conversation of you learned about this conflict, this regret that the community had when it comes to this band. Where does the band stand today? So it's worth noting that current band members I spoke with have all said they've had a great experience with it and it's been fun for them. I think the band plays a similar role of engaging students and providing opportunity. I think the question is, which students are being served by that opportunity? And for the most part, it's not the students who are zoned for that school. So there's the marching band that's still at Eastside that still plays in core style as um, directed by the school. But there's also an alumni band and they've kind of seems like they've been trying to bring this legacy back. Um, Tell me about the alumni band. This was such a fun story to report just because it allowed me to witness this alumni band. When Mr. Parker died in 2016, there was an alumna, Kathy Norman, who had been fighting to preserve his legacy. She describes it as a calling from God. And the year after he died, she managed to get the street leading up to Eastside High named after him. And they had this big dedication ceremony for the street name. And alumni of Parker's band flew in from other states. They, many 
alumni dusted off their instruments for the first time in decades. And this, these alumni played to honor Mr. Parker's memory. They thought it would be just a one-time performance, but the community was so excited to see them again and to see the old style of marching that they kept getting invited to play. And so they've played at historically black churches and they've marched through historically black neighborhoods. They even marched to Mrs. Parker's house um, and they're still active today. Today, there's two iterations of this famed band. There's the actual school band at Eastside High um, that marches in the core style, and there's the alumni band made up of the alumni. Do these two bands, are they involved at all? Is there any um, interaction or uh, collaboration between the two? The school does invite the alumni band to play at the school regularly, sometimes even with and alongside the current band students. But several alumni did say they're hoping to be more directly involved and would love to help students bring back some elements of this historically Black style of marching. Katie, is there anything else that you think that listeners should know about the story? I think when we have discussions around the decisions made following desegregation or things that happened decades ago, Oftentimes the response is the past is the past and it's time to move on. But I think reporting this story, it was clear that for many people in our community, this is not in the past. This is still something that they care about. It's still something that moves them today. And they don't feel like they've had resolution to this and they still feel like there's possibility for change. WUFT's Inequity Reporter and Report for America Corps member Katie Heisen speaking with producer Melissa Fato about her reporting on Gainesville's Eastside High Marching Band. Even after desegregation 52 years ago, Lashua County's educational system remains unequal. Today, the county has the largest achievement gap between black and white students in the state. The story highlights how the effect of old decisions can ripple through a community for decades, and how even a beloved marching band is no small thing to the people who were a part of it. The story was reported through interviews, newspaper, and yearbook entries, and museum archives. The full story in an audio special can be found on wuft.org. You're listening to The Rewind. From WUFT News, stay with us. Our world is changing, and Innovation Hub helps you keep up. Each week, we talk about ideas impacting everything from medicine to education to politics. I'm Kara Miller. Join me on Innovation Hub. Sunday morning at 11 on WUFT. Welcome back to The Rewind from WUFT News. I'm your host, Malia Lydon. A potential new development to the Florida Turnpike would split one of the state's oldest historically black neighborhoods in two. 
Residents of Royal Neighborhood, located just west of Wildwood in Sumner County, aren't supporting the Turnpike extension and are pursuing a movement against it. Producer Ariana Asperu spoke with WUFT reporter Heather Bushman about where this project is headed and what it means for those in the area. So your story centers around the impact that a potential extension to the Florida Turnpike could have on a local historic Black community. Can you tell me a little bit more about the possible extension? Yeah, definitely. So this is an extension to the Florida Turnpike that would essentially run northwest. There are four potential routes to it that all are kind of trying to run northwest and divert traffic off of I-75 near the Ocala area. It was proposed around 2019, if I'm remembering correctly, with the MCORS bill, which was basically just trying to establish a bunch of different routes around Florida just to improve overall traffic congestion, safety, et cetera. They scrapped that bill, but they still wanted the Department of Transportation to individually look into projects that were worth pursuing. And this specific extension, the Northern Turnpike extension, was something that FDOT decided was worth pursuing. So what it's going to do to the Royal community, which is right off of Wildwood, where the turnpike starts, is really just cut it in half because it runs along County Road 462. And that's right kind of smack dab in the middle of what Royal is. The boundaries of Royal aren't super defined. It's not an official zip code or anything like that. It's not a set. It's here, here, this neighborhood. But there is kind of an agreed upon area that it is. And the way the turnpike extension exists right now all four of the routes would cut through where Royal is. And from your story, you spent some time in the community itself. Can you give me some background on them and just how their reality will change if it's implemented? Yeah, so this is the one of the oldest uh, Black communities in the state, founded in 1865, but their way of life is very community-oriented. It's all gathering in neighbors' yards to chat. Everybody knows everybody. I literally found a source because I was talking to one guy in his driveway and he sees a car and he waves him over. Turns out it's his brother and he's the guy I need to talk to. So it's very close-knit, very tight. Families are have stayed there for generations. Brothers and sisters live right next to each other, cousins, aunts, uncles. Like I said, the turnpike would just split that in half. So I talked to a couple brothers who live on either sides of 462, or I think it was something like their aunts and their mother live on one side and they live on the other. And if the turnpike goes through, there's really not an easy way for them to get to their their family because that road is going to go all the way through the community. They'd have to make some crazy route, whereas now they can just go up the road. If the turnpike paves through that road, then there's no way to get to their house anymore. So it's kind of splitting this community-oriented historic place into two separate factions. Yeah, it's, it's, it's creating a giant well, for lack of a better word, roadblock to people just kind of going up the street and seeing each other's. You kind of mentioned how you spoke to locals while you were there about how they feel and just how they'll be impacted by it. Can you tell me a little bit about what they said? Yeah, as a reporter, you're very encouraged to try to get both sides, find people of all different opinions, see where everybody feels on a, on a specific topic. And usually something like that warrants a couple different opinions and a couple different angles. I don't think I talked to a single person who was in favor of this. No one, at least locally, wants it. You know, number one, there is the issue of relocating. I talked to a, a lot of the people I talked to were retired who don't have a steady income. So of course there's eminent domain. So if, if FDOT does take their property, they're going to be compensated for what the value of their property is. But still, you never know what that's gonna be. 
the second reason people were so upset about it is because like i said earlier it's it's splitting families and it's splitting friends up so those brothers i talked to were scared that they wouldn't be able to get to their aunts and their mom there have been so many meetings where residents are asking f dot honestly the tough questions why are you splitting up our community where are we going to go what's going to happen to us most of the people i met were born there and raised there there's not a lot of people i talked to who had moved to royal from somewhere else and not had roots there so it was definitely a, an energy in a, a situation of deep concern from pretty much everyone I talked to. So how have local governments reacted to this issue? Is there something they can do? Have they talked about stepping in? Yeah, a lot of local governments that I've seen have been either urged by their constituents or just have done it themselves to pass a no-build resolution, which is just the government saying that we don't support the construction because it is a private project. It's not really in the hands of the citizens anymore. It's an FDOT project. There's nothing they can say to say, we're not going to allow this to happen. It's really in FDOT's hands. But Levy County's passed a no-build resolution. Sumter County has. Wildwood has. A lot of local governments where this would be affected have just passed resolutions that have let FDOT know that they don't want this. Residents are turning up to meetings. They're emailing their commissioners. They're emailing FDOT people. Local governments, really, all they can do is just kind of be the conduit for their their constituents to speak to FDOT. They are hosting a lot of informational sessions where FDOT representatives will come and answer questions and be open for public comment. Concretely, there isn't really an emergency panic button that they can press that says, no, we we don't allow this. There's really, it's, it's really not their jurisdiction, if I'm understanding it correctly. And going forward, you mentioned in the story that it's still in the early stages and it's not slated to begin in the near future. What can we look out for until then? Is there a, a timeline? Yeah. So right now they're in the middle of their project development environment study, which means that FDOT is just assessing the effects that this construction would have on the environment, the local culture, local economies, et cetera, et cetera. That's going to take a while. The timeline's pretty vague, but if I'm just remembering what they said correctly, it's kind of spring of next year at maybe the earliest is when they're going to conclude that study. But of course, that's subject to change just just based on how long it takes. What's going to happen in the immediate future is honestly just more meetings, more public comment, more opposition. A bunch of people are gathering and rallying and informational Facebook pages and websites are going up. People are constantly emailing these FDOT officials and their local officials and just voicing really overwhelming opposition to it. It's really a couple of years down the line at least, but near immediate future, at least, you know, what's going to be making local headlines is just people trying to get the word out about it. So it seems like the story is just beginning for the next few years in the area. How did you find the story and what was it like reporting it? Yeah, my first story ever for WFT for multimedia reporting, I had done a story on the Northern Turnpike extension and specifically its effects in Levy and Marion counties on rural land. So I had stayed in touch with a bunch of the people I talked to for that story. So they would always send me, we're having a meeting here, this is happening tonight. And I just got one message about, hey, did you see somebody posted about the potential effects of this in Broil? And I said, that's really interesting. So just drove down to go find it. And I literally parked my car at the epicenter of this community in Royal Park and just walked up the street and found people to talk to. And 
I really got the community sentiment. I just stayed in Royal for a couple hours at a time, listened to the natural bird sounds and the quiet of it. And it was cool to see how it was going to tangibly impact people by speaking to them directly. Because I think a lot of the time we interpret what that means through, like I said, official statements and some kind of press release. So definitely a challenge to go down there and find the people, but ultimately a great reward in seeing that firsthand impact that these issues have and then subsequently what my reporting might have. So it was, it was really cool. That was WUFT reporter Heather Bushman speaking with producer Ariana Asperu about how a potential extension to the Florida Turnpike risks a historically Black community. That's all for this episode. The Rewind from WUFT News is produced by Ariana Asperu, Sarah Mandile, Melissa Fato, and Malia Leiden. Our executive producer is Sky LeBron. WUFT News is operated out of the College of Journalism and Communications at the University of Florida. Remember to follow us at WUFT News on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest stories. I'm Malia Leiden. Thanks for listening.